Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to establish a kingdom. He came to show us the Father. I don't know if that was in your in yours this morning or not, but uh, he's the express image of the Father fleshed out in human life. He is a perfect example. And then he came to overcome the devil and his kingdom. And there's so many, yeah, I'm sure we could uh, hardly exhaust uh, the reasons he came. I guess the question would be, did he come in your life? Did he come in my life? Is he your example? Is he my example? Because we all have heroes, don't we? We all have people or some things that we look up to, that we admire, that we honor, that we emulate. Lord Jesus Christ, really, is deserving of that first place. (laughs) It's almost blasphemy to think anything else. Well, I want to welcome you to this part of the service. Pray that you can be awake and alert and uh, hear what the Lord has to say to us. We traveled out to Indiana, my, uh, my wife and a couple of our children, and we were spending a good part of the week, end of the week traveling, driving. But that's a blessing when you have uh, numerous drivers. You don't have it all on one person. Before we go on, why don't we just, if you can, let's just stand for a word of prayer. Lord, our eyes are upon you this morning. You are our king. You are the one, Lord, that is in charge, is, the, is our advocate, is our guardian, is our example, You are everything, Lord. And so, Lord, our eyes are upon you, and we ask you, Lord, to teach us and instruct us this morning out of your word and into our hearts and out into our lives. Lord, truly, this world is a dark place, and we are some of your hands and feet in this world. So pray, Lord, you would uh, equip us, Prepare us. Even at the song that we sang, the question was asked, where our anchor hold in the storms of life? And Lord, we are confident our anchor will hold as we abide in the vine, as we trust you, as we walk with you. Lord, I pray you would be with us this morning. Bless your word. Bless the teaching of your word. Bless each heart here, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. it. And you can turn to Second Peter, where we have been for the last number of months now. And for a little bit of encouragement to uh, those of you who thought we were going to be eternally in Second Peter, we're going to get through four verses this morning. So um, we are speeding up a little bit, and we can turn, we're going to start reading in Second Peter chapter 1, start reading in verse 8 for a little bit of context, but our focus this morning will be verse 12 to verse 15. So let's read here. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, 
though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For a number of messages, we have been studying, of course, those seven virtues and those seven qualities that God, through Peter, is saying needs to be added or supplemented to our faith, to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our our hope, our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says it is, you need to add these things to that faith, and he made a pretty good case that it is an absolutely essential for the Christian. Those virtues are absolutely essential for the Christian to possess and to possess an increasing um, and the growing manner. These things that we looked at, those seven virtues we didn't read this morning, are not optional. They are mandatory. If you desire to prosper in God's kingdom, both now and eternally. And uh, he lays out, Peter lays out clearly the consequences if you do these things or if you don't do these things. He lays out the consequences. If you do them, you will be ordained or appointed a blessing. And it says, it says, these seven qualities make you, they cause you, they appoint you that you are not going to be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it all culminates in a grand homecoming. But if you don't, Add these things, if they're not a part of the, your life, instead of an appointment to a fruitful experience, there is a designation to blindness and forgetfulness. And one of the definitions of blindness we had last time was you can't see the end in the trend. <laughs> that is one definition of blindness. And it will cause you to be vulnerable to the false teachers that Peter is going to be talking about later. And he said, and the implication is that you will fall. So, because this is so eternally consequential, Peter is saying to be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Because it is of utmost importance. Then we come to verse 12. And in these several verses, Peter becomes personal. You know, I like personal people that speak from their heart. Peter does this. He does it really beautifully. He reveals his heart and he actually explains his thought processes. That reminds me of that time that I sat beside Dr. Hinkle in an emergency room at 2 o'clock in the morning as we were, as he, not me, we, he was trying to diagnose one of my children what was wrong with him. And he talked out loud as he was thinking, and I, he, I heard his thought processes. And of course, before that, I always had the idea what doctors, they've been trained and they know what to do, so uh, they already you know, got this problem when we got this issue. Well, no, that's not that simple. We're a lot more complex than that. So he was going through the process of elimination. He was talking out loud. He was going through his thought processes. Well, Peter lets us in on some of his thought processes. So in verse says, in verse 12, he says, because it is so important that you add these things and the consequences are so immense, he says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent. 
That is his response to these immensely consequential realities he had just talked about. Now, we are all negligent in some areas of our life. I imagine there are some people in this room, no, I can imagine it, I don't know if it's true or not, that are negligent in changing our smoke alarm batteries. And there's probably some who are not negligent. They put it in their calendar and they change it every half year. Well, maybe not quite. The batteries last longer than that. Some of us are more negligent of our equipment than others. Some of us are more negligent of our relationships than others. We are negligent in some areas. But Peter says here, there is one thing I will not be negligent. He says, I will not be negligent. I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Now that's a statement of purpose. That's a statement of heart. That's a statement of value. These adding to your faith things. I will not neglect this. I will always and I will continually remind you of them. They are so essential and so vital, they are on my non-negligent list, if you have such a list. But he gives this burden in the midst of a blessing. He says, I will continue to remind you, even though you already know it, And not only do you know it, that's actually right where you are right now. You are established in that present truth right now. He told them that. You know, last Sunday, John had a message in which he exhorted us to not go from a walk of faith and go back to familiar territory of our past life. He told us that. And he used the example of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And he also used the book of Hebrews as an example and the book of Galatians as an example. And those examples were people who needed correction because they were either already going back or they were just ready to go back. But in this case here with Peter, it does not appear. He is is saying, see, I know you already know You already know what I am reminding you of. And you are established and you are settled. You are actively walking in this truth. Isn't that a blessing? I know you are walking faithfully, brother. I know you are authentic, sister. But I want to encourage you to keep on going and continue to remind you. And then we hear more of Peter's personal heart in the next verse. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Peter is telling us what he is thinking. He said, yeah, I think it is meat. He's actually telling us what he's thinking. <laughs> now, that word meat means it's righteous or just. It's not the same word than when you have a help meat, a meat suitable. It's not that word. It's a word that it's righteous or it's just. So Peter is saying, I think I am justified in reminding you Of this until my dying day. I think I'm justified in doing that. One day I'm going to be killed like the Lord Jesus Christ had showed him. He said someday, probably soon, he expected he would not not live too much longer at this time. He said someday I'm going to stop breathing. My heart is going to stop beating I'm going to become cold. My body is. But until then, I think 
I am justified in keeping on reminding you. And not just reminding you, stirring you up. Did he say that? Yeah, he did. He did. Stir you up. Yes, you are established. But we are by nature leaky buckets, are we not? We get filled up and we think we are full. But after a while we're not. And we need to be filled again. We need to be stirred up. We think we are love the Lord Jesus like we sang. We sang Lord Jesus how um, I love thee. If ever I love thee, my Lord, tis now. That's right. And that's a blessing. And there are some things when we actually feel that way. But there's other times we don't. We need stirring up. Peter said, I need to stir you up. In remembrance. I want to regularly stir you up. I want to stir that campfire and put more wood on it. Regularly. Because the fire goes out. It does. Why Peter? And then he gives us another reason. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. After I am dead and gone, I want you to continue on. This is a grandfather speaking to his children and to his grandchildren. There is a faith that is once and for all delivered to the saints. Peter says, I have embraced and I have practiced that faith and I have an enormous burden that you, my descendants and my disciples, would continue in that once and for all faith. And his burden is couched in the reality of what he's going to say later on in his letter is those false teachers and those false systems. Someday soon, I'm not going to be here anymore. But they, those false teachers, are going to be here. I want to put you in the best possible position that after I'm gone, you can still resist them and you can expose them. That's why I keep going over and over with this. I want this to be a burning in your heart and mind so much that after I'm gone, you'll keep right on track even as those teachers grow in prominence and influence. Now, Peter's experience is one that is common to humanity and that's the title of my message this morning is The Second Generation. The older generation moves on And the next one takes its place. That's what's happening. What we're reading this morning, that's what's happening. An older generation is going on, and a new one is going to be taking over. There's a passing on of the baton. You know, those uh, relay races, and I'm not uh, real familiar with them, but somebody runs for a while, they have this baton, and when, the, uh, when they're done with their part of the race, they hand the baton to someone else, and that person runs, and then they hand it to someone else, and the whole thing is, is a lineage until you get to the end, and somebody wins. Well, there's a passing of the baton here, going on here. And then the next generation takes it and runs for a while, and then they pass it on. This is some of what Peter is grappling with and endeavoring to pass on the faith in the best way possible, the most effective way possible. And so, this phenomenon that's going on, another phenomenon that's going on here that uh, I like to talk about is that Peter is a first generation Christian. That true? You know, we talked about first generation Christian today. Peter was a real first-generation Christian. There were none before that.
And the first generation Christians are unique in certain areas. They are unique in that they have made a clear and concisive break from their past. I thought I could illustrate it with Abraham. Abraham was not a Christian, so to speak, but he was a man of God. He was a first, well, I believe so. Uh, he, uh, the, the example. He was called by God to leave his homeland and his family and go to another land. That is what a first generation Christian is often asked to do. <clears throat> Whether they come out of a traditional setting or whether they come out of a degenerate setting of some kind, or wherever they come out of, there is a clear break made from their past life, and the ungodliness that's in it, and the, and the idolatry, or whatever is in there, they've made a clear break from that past, from its ways, and its people. And a new course of life is pursued. And they follow after Christ and his word. That's what a first generation Christian does. Now we say God has no grandchildren. And what we mean by that is that no one is born a Christian. Every child of God, every true Christian, every person who is in the kingdom must personally repent of their own sins and be born again. And be baptized and walk with God in the way that Peter says we need to walk with God. So, first generation Christians, second generation Christians, third generation Christians need to personally become a child of God. But there is a major difference between a first generation Christian and a second generation Christian. There is. I want you to think about this. While the first generation makes a clear break from the past and indeed needs to, the second generation is to remain in and connected to the first generation. And that's a pretty big difference there. Abraham left his father's house and land and went into a foreign land. But his son Isaac did not make a break with his father and his land and go to a foreign land. And it wasn't expected to. He was a second generation. He stayed with his father. Peter had left his Jewish faith and whatever people stayed in there. And that whole system of the Jewish faith, he had left it behind and he followed Christ. But now... Now, he is calling his people, his flock, to continue in the way that was so clearly laid out before them and not make a break with that. Remember, he says, remembering is to a reminder to continue on. Now, how does all that apply to us today? Well, like Peter, some of us are first-generation Christians, here. Some are second generation and some are third or more. And just like Peter, one generation is soon going to be moving on and another takes its place. I would expect we're probably 10 or 20 years behind Peter, but it's coming and the baton is going to be passed on to the next generation. That's going to happen. How are we the older generation, preparing the next generation to run. And how is the next generation applying themselves to take it on? Are we, as Peter, older generation, endeavoring over and over to remind them of the true faith? And are they being established in the present truth? <laughs> Things to, things to think about. In Peter's situation, he knew the next generation 
was going to face challenges that he didn't face. I mean, every generation faces its challenges. But Peter knew that these, as we read in the letter, that these teachers are going to come, and they were going to come in more prominence than they would have in his life. Okay? So, he did his best to prepare them for it by reminding them of the truth and exposing to them the present and coming error. And like I said, this is true probably for every generation, but it is also true today. The next generation is going to face things we didn't. So what is true today? Peter exposes the challenges his descendants were going to face. What issues, what challenges, what dangers do our young people face or what are they going to face today? Well, you could have a series of messages on that. It is um, I'm I'm going to narrow it down to one to one main thing. And I think it's a I think it's actually a prominent issue. And it's by by no means the only issue. And uh, Alan brought out one issue already of outreach and the lack thereof is an issue also, can be an issue. But I'm going to use an example that Frank Reed used while he was teaching history. And he was describing the context and the process in which the Mennonite colleges became liberal 75 to 100 years ago. Some of you may have heard him give that presentation, and I know he could do it much better than I, but I'll try to just give you an overview of it. First of all, this is probably back in the 19, early, early, mainly early to mid 1900, but probably more early 1900s. Early to mid. Back, back then, first of all, the Mennonites back then were becoming more active in missions and other world activity. The old order division had occurred. The division, the division was actually a result of Protestant influence coming into the Mennonite church. And, um, you see, some of that influence coming in was good because the Mennonite church was not at a good place spiritually. Some of the influence coming in was very good. But it did cause a division. But as it always happens, when you accept someone else's theology or philosophy or lifestyle, if you accept if you accept someone else's and make it your own, the problems that are inherent in that package become your problem because things come in packages. You get the whole package, the good and the bad. Well, back then they were entering into the world scene as it was then. And a major thing that was happening back then was the battle between the fundamentalists and the progressives or the, the liberals or the modernists, got different names for them. The old order groups didn't face that because they were isolated and secluded in their little enclaves. So they didn't face that. But the Mennonite church and especially the colleges, they were entering into this whole realm and these Protestants basically became some of their peers. That's what it became. So they interacted with this. So the landscape then was that the fundamentalists were much more militant and much more rigid. Their focus and battlefronts kept dealt largely with keeping the truth from slipping the way as they saw it, and they were much more pro-war and pro-American. I don't know if that is a complete fair analysis. That's the best way I could come to describe it, but it could be a, 
described in several different ways. The progressives, on the other hand, were much more interested in the social problems of the world. They had largely forsaken evangelism since many of them were not even quite sure there was a hell anymore or a judgment. So their focus was on improving people's lives here and now. Theirs was, had become largely a social gospel. And that was the scene in which the Mennonite colleges found themselves in. Now, which camp do you think they were drawn to? The pro-war, pro-America, militant fundamentalist? Or the loving, embracing, caring liberals? For a group that's designated as the Peace Churches, they connected much more easily and much more naturally with the liberals. This is what Frank Reed just right out and said it. I'm not saying it myself. It's, his, it's history. And so they did. And then the question could be, were they not aware of what all the liberals believed or didn't believe? Did they think they could associate with them, eat the watermelon and spit out the seeds? And not be affected by them? I'm not sure what they thought. I I actually don't know the thought processes that went on back then. But we know that liberalism swept through those colleges and completely took over. And then it filtered down to the related churches. And they were completely changed even as they were busy doing their social gospel. Now, the question had maybe the first generation back then with their traditional Anabaptist filter could actually do that. But it was clear that the succeeding generations could not face without going for it. And what I want to do this morning is expose or um, what I believe something that has similar effects today. So that's where I'm going for the rest of the message. For the rest of the time I have, I want to contrast some of the difference between the Anabaptist view or perspective with the conservative, Protestant, or evangelical view. I'm going to contrast those two views. While the two have some common and overlapping beliefs, they are not the same. You might well say, well... If they are Christians and we are Christians, does it matter that much? Well, if it doesn't matter that much, why don't you just join them today? Why not wait? Why wait 20 years to do so? And you might say, well, we've heard this before. And we heard it from you, preacher. Well, then I'm going to be like Peter. I'm going to remind you again. I do have this concern because of what I observe Everywhere. Everywhere. People in old order settings get saved or get revived. They end up leaving the old order setting and begin their journey with God. But in only a few generations, their descendants are either non-Christians or evangelicals of some kind or liberal Anabaptists. That's the observation. That's reality. And it's been going on for at least 150 years. There's even a name for it. It's called the Anabaptist Escalator. Old orders get on the one end of the escalator, and each succeeding generation goes further and further away from its Anabaptist roots until they get off the other end somewhere. I challenge you to deny that reality as you look around. Why is that? What is going on? And how can it be stayed or reversed? Now, it's a complex issue and it has many facets. But since this is the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation, I thought I would focus on that today. One area of that problem. It's a multifaceted problem. I'm not saying that this is the whole issue. And it it, it isn't. It isn't the whole issue. I think it's a major one. It it might be the primary one. 
What I'm going to do is start with the typical experience of someone leaving the old order. Now, I admit I'm going to do some stereotyping because I'm going to use a typical situation. There's always exceptions. Don't make the exceptions so that you can't have a typical stereotype. That's done commonly. Because there are always exceptions, then they say, well, then there's no norm. No, that's not true. There are norms. There are typical things. Now, there are always exceptions. We acknowledge that. But we're going to follow a typical exceptions, even though there are a typical situation, even though there are variations, of course. Historically, many old order practices resemble Catholic practices. And it's in this way. You are born into a culture. At least uh, this is probably Catholic more in its historic way. Catholics probably are changing a lot also, but historically. You are born into a culture. Then you join the church and you do what the church tells you. There's not much taught on a new birth and a real walk with God. And there are many inconsistencies in that system and many sinful practices. Not unlike historic Catholic. Well, then some people somehow, somewhere, see the light. And they get born again. And suddenly they do not fit in their old system. The new wine does not fit in that old wineskin. Praise the Lord. And so, many of them, many times, they end up leaving. Most times. Now what? Well, that varies a lot. But the typical situation we will follow is someone who continues to believe and appreciate the many practical things he was taught in his old order setting. He believes that those practices and beliefs are God's will and he continues on in them. And he also... But we could say that he retains an Anabaptist view of God and the scripture. That's what he does. But those practices are not practiced in, within a vital, connected relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Those practices that he did that were dead became now living obedience and a walk with the Lord Jesus. It is so different. It is night and day different. And yet, those beliefs and those practices are still followed because they are in the word. And he sees, yep, they're in the word. I believe that. So some of the things he did in the old order, he still does. Plus, he becomes convicted of some other things he didn't do in the past, maybe like evangelism. But there's also something else happening. He is in a completely new religious world now. He's no longer in his old order setting. He is in a completely new religious world. Again, this varies, but generally he begins to read religious books. He may listen to religious radio, sermons, videos, movies, and music. And most of that is evangelical media. And he learns a lot that way. He is blessed and he is motivated many times to serve God more as he is inspired by those books and those sermons or whatever media he uses. And because he sees the world through his old order filter and his Anabaptist worldview, he can often effectively filter out the areas of evangelicalism that contradicts his belief system. Because he has a huge background perspective that comes with him. Then his children grew up in that situation. They do not have an old order filter. They have a Christian home filter. With a strong evangelical input. Only they don't filter out. Nearly to the same extent that their parents do that evangelical input. It all sounds good to them. 
the evangelical presentations and arguments make perfect sense. They have articulate, convincing, professional speakers. Their videos and movies are moving and influential. And their music seems to lift them up to worship. And guess what happens? We are seeing the Mennonite escalator in action right there. We have seen a first generation Christian make a clean break from his past, but then we see the break from the past continuing in the second generation. In a way that's not intended. But it's happening all the time. It's happening right now. It might be happening here. I realize there are many other factors in this complex situation, but I don't think we dare ignore this one. We must look honestly and squarely at this one, or we will be part of the escalator. And I don't have all the answers, because this could be a topic that many messages long. And I realize not everybody's on the escalator coming from an old order setting. Some are actually in this room are coming from the other side, and they have actually made a choice, and they are actually in a many times in a better position because they have made a choice and have seen the other side of it. Now, the answer is not to not read any material from the evangelicals. That's not the answer. There are some things in which our beliefs overlap. There are some areas in which they are stronger and more obedient than we are. There are places where they can challenge us. But some of the answer is of this problem can be in this statement here. It is time we are less enamored by them and their teaching. That would be a good start. And this morning I want to put my two cents worth towards that. First, we're going to look at some how some of the Anabaptist and evangelical teachings overlap. There are some ways in which our beliefs overlap. And when I say evangelical, I mean most of the preachers you would hear on WDAC radio and other conservative evangelicals. The comparison is only the overarching themes and not the details. So here's the first one. Number one, how our beliefs overlap is belief in the Bible as the authoritative and inspired word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And Peter, in this very book that we're studying, and later on in the same chapter here, he actually says, he said, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In a few more messages, we'll be looking at that scripture. So, there are some variations. The Anabaptists tend to focus more on the life and teachings of Jesus, his kingdom teachings, more focus on that, but not to the exclusion of the other. Some evangelicals believe in or lean towards more of a flat Bible in which some of the Old Testament norms are brought into the New Covenant. And there are variations of hermeneutics or interpretation methods of Scripture. But the point is, evangelicals and Anabaptists both agree that the Bible is the inspired word of God. The Bible is different from any other book, any other religious book. It is supernaturally inspired and is uniquely authoritative for Christian belief and practice. Number two is belief in the need for conversion. This is a belief that a true, full, authentic Christian life, life in fellowship with God, always and necessarily includes a personal decision of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which is more than just turning over a new leaf. It is more than just 
a decision to join a church or live a better life. It is a Holy Spirit-inspired, motivated event in a believer's life. Again, there are variations. Repentance is missing in some, and so also is a cross-bearing life. And sometimes they are leaning toward a child evangelism. But as it stands, there is large agreement as stated. Number three, in which there are overlap, is the necessity of the cross of Jesus. It's a strong devotion to the cross of Jesus Christ as an event that reconciles God to man and man to God. It is that event. Christ's death on the cross, his atoning sacrifice for sins, is crucial to faith and life and worship and piety. Now, the original Anabaptist view, and I'm going to say original because it's not longer, not always present anymore, I don't think so, but the original Anabaptist view was a little broader. It includes Christ's victory, over the devil. And then when we come into Christ, we enter into that same victory over the devil. And then we also enter into a life of victory over sin. That's part of the Anabaptist belief. But, and it's not always uh, recognized in the evangelicals, but the recognition of the central necessity of the cross is had by both. Number four, the true evangelical Christianity, Christian, and the true Anabaptism is marked by, going to call it activism in evangelism and social realms. What that means, I mean, how that activism works out is really different in many different segments. But the point is that both believe that the Christians are not the quiet in the land in the sense of a mystical or a secluded withdrawal from society. So at its best, when it is true to its roots, both of them include a robust desire and effort to influence the world. Of course, like I said, that what Influence is intended varies significantly, but the basic truth is there. So that's where evangelicals and Anabaptism overlap. And there would be more, too. These are just broad, overarching views. Belief in the Bible. Belief in the need for conversion. Belief in the necessity of the cross of Jesus. And the need to be active in this world. And as an Anabaptist that is exposed to these teachings in various forms and books and sermons and videos, this old order transplant is inspired, instructed, and fed. It's real. It has an impact on his life. And he grows. But unlike, but like those dear people in the Mennonite college that they may not have been aware of, there are actually some fundamental differences in the foundations of these people that they are so enamored with. There are fundamental differences. And these differences will eventually show up, usually in the succeeding generation. There are actually many differences. I'm actually going to focus on one fundamental difference. I mean, this message is so inadequate <laughs> in its breadth. <laughs> it's so inadequate. But we will focus on one main one, and I think it's actually, I think it's actually a foundational. It's actually the very foundation which the other differences stack up. That's what I believe. So we will look at that one. <clears throat> What are the fundamental differences? What is that? What is that fundamental difference? Let me rephrase that. It's one fundamental difference. What is it? Well, this takes us back 500 years to the beginning of Protestantism. 
evangelicalism as we know it today is firmly based on the Protestant Reformation. It, of course, began with Luther in Germany, Swingley in Switzerland, and went on to Calvin in Geneva. It moved over to England and includes the Puritans and the Separatists and the Scottish Covenanters and the Baptists and the Methodists. It in, they're talking about the Protestants and the Reformation. It included men like Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, David Brainerd, Charles Spurgeon, and we could go on and on and on and give you a lot of names. But what is the fundamental difference between the Protestant Reformation and the Anabaptists? And there is one major difference. The Reformers went back to the beginning of the Catholic Church during the time of Constantine and Augustine. The Anabaptists took the Bible's teaching literally and did not culturally adapt it as the Reformers did And the result was a belief and practice that was largely like the early church. Before it was corrupted by Constantine and Augustine. And that fundamental difference makes a huge difference in many areas. Some of the things that the Anabaptists stood for originally and died for that the original reformers would not accept were later accepted by many of the Protestants. Some Protestants today now reject infant baptism. Others, other things that were adopted later on that the Anabaptists originally had and the early church had was volunteer church membership, separation of church and state, no physical persecution. Those things were huge in the original Reformation, but they were, some of those issues were corrected, basically completely corrected by later, later uh, Protestant groups. And one thing that we can take from that is that the turtle does actually win (laughs) the race but there are still major differences because of that fundamental difference that we talked about eternal security Calvinism divorce and remarriage non-resistant the two kingdoms of course that varies an unswearing of oath pilgrim and stranger with its non-conformity mindset community and head covering and simplicity and so many and on and on These and many other things is what is lost when we imbibe or take in the evangelical teachings. Those are the things that are lost to our children and grandchildren. There are many variations of evangelicals, but the common denominator is how far back they go. I don't think any evangelicals goes back to the early church in completeness. They stopped more or less where the Reformation did with Constantine and Augustine, and this is true of all the well-known names today. I'm going to give you some names. Just simply said, this is my understanding of where these people stop in going back. A well-known name, John MacArthur, John Piper, Josh McDowell, Josh Harris, Chuck Swindle, Alistair Bay, Charles Stanley, David Jeremiah, Ravi Zachariah, James Dodson, Tony Evans, Ken Ham, Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, Johnny Erickson Tata, and many, many more. All of these are children of the Protestant Reformation. They go back to Augustine. As such, there are many overlapping similarities. There are many things that we correlate together but there are fundamental differences that cannot be ignored now there are many different ways that people explain this difference as far as the early church because the evangelicals are not a homogenous group they vary a lot But I'd like to read you how a Calvinist explained the difference between the early church belief and their belief. And I I was given, probably 20 years ago, I was given a big fat book (laughs) defending or really really just simply laying out Calvinism as the only true belief system. (laughs) And I think I read it. 
But there's one chapter in it toward the end that was so astounding, I copied it out. So I have one page out of that book yet. And the title of the chapter is Colonism in History. Before the Reformation. Now here, let's just read carefully. I'm going to read slowly, so I hope you can follow along. The writer says here, It may occasion some surprise to discover that the doctrine of predestination was not made a matter of special study until near the end of the 4th century. 4th century is late 300s, okay? The earlier church fathers place chief emphasis on good works such as faith, repentance, almsgiving, prayers, submission to baptism, baptism, etc., as the basis of salvation. They, of course, taught that salvation was through Christ, yet they assumed that man had full power to accept or reject the gospel. Some of their writings contain passages in which the sovereignty of God is recognized, Yet alongside of those are others which teach the absolute freedom of the human will. Since they could not reconcile the two, they would have denied the doctrine of predestination and perhaps also of God's absolute foreknowledge. They taught a kind of synergism in which there was cooperation between grace and free will. It was hard for man to give up the idea that he could work out his own salvation. But at last, as the result of a low, slow, a long, slow process, he came, mankind, came to the great truth that salvation is a sovereign gift which is bestowed irrespective of merit, that it was fixed in eternity, and that God is the author of all of its stages. This cardinal truth of Christianity was first clearly seen by Augustine, the great spirit-filled theologian of the West. In his doctrines of sin and grace, he went far beyond the early theologians, taught an unconditional election of grace, and restricted the purposes of redemption redemption to the definite circle of the elect. And that's the end of the page. But do you get what was actually said here? This man was unusually honest. He actually said, we believe something that the early church didn't believe. But it's because they didn't understand it. That's why. The church was, it's primitive. It was in its infancy. And it, and, but when it came to maturity, now we understand. You know, I actually appreciate that honesty that's in here. But what they are actually saying is the early church was actually mistaken and wrong and didn't understand. That is the... Well, we might say, well, that's heretical. It is. <laughs> I believe it is. That is totally heretical. But the fact is, most people are not that honest. They will either ignore the early church or they explain it away with intellectual arguments or they will who knows what. But this is a fundamental difference between the evangelicals and the Anabaptists. And there is an escalator going from the Anabaptist belief to the Protestant belief. Praise God, it also comes the other way. And if it comes the other way, can we also say praise God, we can get off the escalator if we're on it. This morning was mostly to erase awareness. I don't have four or six or 27 points how to avoid this. But like Peter, as long as I am in this tabernacle, I'm going to continue to remind you of this truth and of this error. As Peter reminded his people of the truth and error of his day, so we need to do that for our day. Don't be enamored by those people. I don't have the whole answer because I feel like in some ways, although it's changing, there are many, many publications. There is a wealth of publications coming out of Anabaptist circles that were not available in former 
generations. And so, in many ways, we are at a better place to get off. And there are a number of schools uh, that, uh, that we can go to that I think are resisting that escalator. I, I, can't, I don't know. I don't have a finger on the pulse very good, so I don't know exactly where it's at. But uh, our youth are especially vulnerable to that input. And we must raise that alarm. We must face that head on. And again, I would say the, the primary difference is how far back the belief system goes, whether it goes back to the, to, uh, the, uh, back to the Reformation and back to Augustine and Constantine and that whole model, or whether it actually goes back to the early church. And that's the way the Lord Jesus did when he pushed the reset button in marriage. He pushed the reset button and he went right back to the beginning. He said, in the beginning, this is how it was and this is how it should be. So may the Lord bless you. I'm actually open. I uh, trust that we can actually have discussions on this thing because I, I do not have all the answers and neither do I claim to be my perspective is all right in all areas. I, I am sure it is not. It is a, this is one place where we as a church need to walk together, work together, fight together, exhort one another together. So may God bless you.